If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 20. Forgive me, chapter 21. We've been going through the book of Genesis now. We just finished 20. We're in 21. and We've been watching Abraham, following him closely and his family. As God had chosen him to be the father of many. We know Abraham as a man of faith. A man who... God had given him promises that through his seed there would be a great nation. And Abraham had to wait. He had to wait for these promises to be fulfilled. Remember the angels came, they visited him, one of them being the Lord. And as they visited him and told him, the Lord told him, you're going to have a son through Sarah. Sarah laughed in her tent because she thought, how can me, this old woman, have the pleasure of of having a son at my age? And in that moment, the Lord rebuked her. And they had waited and waited for this promise. From that moment, God told them, look, a year from now, you're going to have your son. And Abraham, growing in his faith, he waited. Now, he wasn't a man who was without error. He wasn't a man who was without mistake, and I find comfort in that. Because in his flesh, in order to have God's plan be worked out, he decided to take on matters in his own life against the will of the Lord, and to place his will upon his life, his own will, Abraham's will. And in doing so, when they saw that there was an issue, there was a problem of not being able to have a child, both Sarah and Abraham hatched this plan that Abraham would marry the maid, Hagar. And that, Sarah said to Abraham, Abraham, go into her, have a child with her. And perhaps that's how God is going to have his will performed. Not believing that God had already told them that Sarah and Abraham would have their own son. And from this, Ishmael was born. Hagar bore Ishmael. And when perhaps Sarah thought that she would take Ishmael as her own and raise him, suddenly there was conflict between Hagar and Sarah, so much so that Hagar ran. She ran away, and the Lord brought her back. And she submitted herself unto Sarah, but Sarah despised the two, Ishmael and Hagar. And so they were growing, both all the family together, multiple wives, multiple headaches. And in verse 1, that's a joke, by the way, but I'm positive that this polygamous relationship was not without its drama. But in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 21, it says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, 
And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Here it is. God's word never failing. The Lord visits Sarah. And he did for her what he had promised. This promise was given to Abram at the age of 75 years old. And for 25 years, Abram saw no son. All he had was the word of God, but that's all you need when it's God's word. He waited for 25 years at the age of 100. At that point in time, he for sure was having his doubts. Sarah definitely was. And after 25 years, that's a long time. Just when God said, he visited Sarah and she conceived. You see, God is always on his time. He's always on his perfect time too. He's never late. And he's also never early when we wish he would be sometimes. God is sovereign. In verse three, it says, and Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Remember that covenant of circumcision that God had given Abraham. He was the first Jew. And being the first Jew, God had given him this covenant of circumcision. That through this mark, that people would recognize, that they themselves would recognize that they had been marked by the Lord. His seal was upon them. In verse five, it says, now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. Now it is interesting how previously when the Lord had told Abraham that his son was going to be born through them too, Abraham and Sarah, that Abraham had this laughter moment of like, wow, God, you're, you're incredible. And Sarah also, in doubt and disbelief, said, shall I, uh, this woman in her 90s, have the pleasure of bearing a son, of raising a child? And so because there was so much laughter surrounded this son's birth, his conception, they decided to name him Isaac, which literally means laughter. You see, the, the names of the Hebrew people were very important. They, they took a lot of meaning when it came to their names. In fact, many times they would actually wait about eight days before they named the child because they wanted to name that child in relation to their character. It says in verse seven, she also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. 
sometimes we really underestimate God's power in our life, don't we? That's what Sarah's doing. She says, who would have thought? Remember God, his ways are far above ours. His plans for us are way better than what we can think, what we can imagine. We think so small. We think, how can God use my life? I'm reminded of that little boy who when Jesus was there with the multitudes, the 5,000, he brought his lunch out on the day, a few loaves of bread, a few fish. And when suddenly there was this huge problem of these thousands and thousands of people had no food and they were weary and the time had come for them to eat and the disciples were saying, hey, Jesus, you need to send the people away so they can go get food because they're tired and hungry and we don't, we don't have enough food. This little kid with his fish and his bread. He's like, maybe I'll just share a little with my friends today and that was it. Enough for himself, maybe another. When he heard of this problem, he, he came to the Lord. He said, God, Jesus, this, this is what I have. Gave it to the disciples. The disciples gave it to Jesus. And with that little bit of faith, with that tiny bit of provision, Jesus performed a miracle and fed all 5,000. And that happens twice in the accounts of Jesus' life when it came to the fish and bread being multiplied. I sometimes have gotten a, a sandwich or a pizza and raised it up to the Lord and said, Lord, just multiply this, and, but it never works. That's my foodie talking. But God can overpower our undermet, underestimation, always. He did that as in Sarah's life. And look at verse eight. It says, so the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham scoffing. Therefore, she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Here it is, the drama. This is what happens when there's the flesh involved. Now we have Sarah and Hagar. Their children are now against each other. The older Ishmael is scoffing and mocking this son as they're having a feast for him now that he's weaned, meaning that he's past that age of nursing from the mom. And in the celebration, Sarah notices, hey man, this, this stepchild of mine is, is mocking my son. And this angered Sarah so much that she went to Abraham and said, cast them out. Get rid of them. I don't want them here anymore. Now, there is an interesting illustration of this moment that is given to us by Paul later on in the New Testament. 
Paul uses this account as an illustration, as something symbolic, a way to better understand what it means to be under the law and what it means to be under grace through faith. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 26, I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation of what it says in these verses. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 26, Paul writes this. Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants the covenants referring to the one of the law and later on after Jesus being the one under grace. He goes on to say in Galatians, the first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman, and she is our mother. So you see, there's an illustration here of what it's like to live under the law. That you are trying to earn a right relationship based on your works, which can never make us right. And how that is actually enslaves us. It puts us in a place of bondage where we are constantly trying to work our way up to the Lord and we can't. There's no amount of good works that can earn our way into God's grace. The very meaning of grace is something that is undeserved. Sometimes we we might think, uh, oh, you you know, that that person, they don't deserve my grace. Or maybe that person deserves my grace. I should give it to them. No, that's not definitionally correct. Grace cannot be deserved. It's just given without merit. And that's the most awesome thing about God's love. Is that day after day, no matter how many times we make mistakes, no matter how many times we fall into the same sin over and over, God still loves us. He still provides for us. Perhaps you're wondering right now, man, I I don't know if God's grace is still there for me. 
if you're listening to this right now, I promise you it is. The very fact that you're hearing these words are proof that God's not done with you, that he loves you. We're so blessed and we don't even realize it sometimes. May we find our joy in the freedom that God's grace through faith gives us and not enslave ourselves by the flesh to the law. Back in Genesis chapter 21, verse 11, it says, and the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son, But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. We can imagine Abraham was greatly disappointed at this point. God even told him, don't let it be displeasing in your sight because he was displeased. This whole event had to be a giant stink in his life that he knew that he himself had caused. He acted out in the flesh and this was the result of it division, anger, a a dramatic account between his wife and the woman Hagar. And now he has a son in the midst of all this, Ishmael, whom he must have loved and desiring Ishmael to have a good future. Probably wanted Ishmael to be around him. But God was telling Abraham, look, let heed the voice of Sarah. Let them go. So you see, sometimes God will tell a husband to listen to the voice of their wife. Sometimes. Don't highlight this verse. I'm just kidding. But God's promise to Abraham must have been comforting, knowing that God told him that Ishmael was going to have a nation from him. That he was going to look after Ishmael because it was Abraham's son. And Abraham must have found comfort in this. And then in verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up. And she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him. And lifted her voice 
and wept. So here Abraham sends off Hagar and Ishmael, gives them some water, and sends them away out into the wilderness. And as they're out there, they're, they've run out of water. They're journeying. And Hagar begins to realize that this dangerous environment, it's killing her son. Literally, her son has no more strength. And she becomes to this point where she realizes that my son is going to die and I don't want to watch my son die. So she puts him down under the shade and walks away. This is a moment of complete hopeness, hopelessness. A moment, a moment of just complete giving up. Where she realizes that all hope is gone for her and her son. And in order so that the pain would be a little less, she desires that she would not watch her own son die. What do we do when all hope is gone? What do we do when we meet the greatest failures? When the finances fail? When work fails? What do we do when the relationship is taken away? when our plans, even good plans, come crashing down. Who can we turn to? Is sin going to make it better? Tell me what vice is going to improve that situation? Will it give you answers in your hopelessness? Will it provide comfort? perhaps a physical comfort, perhaps a moment of fun to distract yourself. But even the sin on top of the despair leads to more despair. No, there is no comfort in sin. No true comfort. Many times the way our mind works is that when we confront difficult situations, we turn to where we can find pleasure easily. We turn to something that's gonna distract us from pain instead of turning to the Lord, the one who can heal that pain, the one who could actually walk you through that pain. I think as believers, we think we are exempt from suffering. I think as Believers and as Christians, we think we're supposed to have a smooth road into heaven. But we're met with so many trials as a believer. And then we're surprised when we do. We need to learn as Christians how to suffer. We need to learn as believers how to endure trial. We need to learn as sons and daughters of God how to partake in Christ's suffering. You see, as we accept the will of the Lord, we become more like Jesus. When we give up our own will 
and say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. We share in what Christ suffered and what he did. And in doing so, we meet our purpose. And in meeting our purpose, God fulfills us. The Holy Spirit, Jesus himself, comes and lives inside of our being and works through us. And that's what we're searching for in life so many times, looking for it in all the wrong places, that purpose, that fulfillment. So in hopelessness, Christ gives us power. When we are weak, he is strong. This is where Hagar was at. Completely at a loss. Giving up her son's life. We read in verse 17, it says, And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. If you're in a time and a season of suffering, know this, God hears you. God heard this voice of the lad. Why? Because God is all-knowing. He's all-present. And he sees the suffering. These people were traveling into a foreign land. And God heard them. And he told them, What's wrong? Fear not. Right now, fear is like a tsunami in our world. Fear seeps out through the television, through our phones, through our friends and family members, into our hearts and into our minds. And it causes us to do things that are not the will of the Lord. It freezes us. But perfect love, the Bible teaches, perfect love casts out all fear. So we need to allow God's love to be our strength when it comes to fear. Knowing that God hears us, he told Hagar, arise and lift up. I'm going to make Ishmael a great nation, which he does. From Ishmael's line of family, there's going to be 12 actually nations that come from him. Exactly the opposite of those who would come from Isaac and Jacob. 12 nations from Jacob and 12 nations from Ishmael. 
But God opens Hagar's eyes. And I love that God did the work in this. See, it wasn't Hagar doing the work, but God opened her eyes. Sometimes we're in that moment of God's sovereignty. We don't realize it. Where a thought will come into your head. You'll think about, hey, um, you know what? Today, uh, instead of taking my usual route to work, I'll stop by uh, this route so I could pick something up and go a certain way. And then as you're doing that, you're going along your way. Suddenly God brings someone along your path and you meet with them. You have a divine appointment with them. You talk with that person. You share a little bit of Jesus with them. And then you got to think, was it me who decided to take that road today, that different road that I usually take? Or was it the Lord who put that thought in my mind? Maybe it was both. Because God, since he is sovereign, since he's all-powerful, he works supernaturally through the natural. The definition of God's sovereignty, it's his providence in action. God's sovereignty is his providence in action. It's not a coincidence. God knows what's going on. You're not listening to this by coincidence. God wanted you to hear this for a reason. He wants you to know that your life, it's in his hands. That he's got those things worked out that you've been praying about. That the plans that you make, even though they fail, sometimes he's directing your steps. Everything is preparation for the next step. And God is opening our eyes to see this. He's doing the work. And as Hagar saw this well of water, she had to think, God saved me. This is that moment of just complete and utter darkness turned into light. This is that moment when there's hopelessness, when all chances of a good life have failed when the enemy is surrounding and fear and death and pain and suffering is overcoming you like a wave. And in that darkest moment when you feel that there's no hope, suddenly this miraculous providence of God's power breaks through the scene. His love, his light, his truth, his sovereignty come flying in. And she drinks this water from a well that nourishes her and her son. Jesus said, I am living water. Come drink from me and you will never be thirsty again. And when we take of him, he fulfills us. He's that savior even in our darkest moment. 
So now that they are saved, in verse 20, it says, So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Now again, there would be 12 sons that came from Ishmael. And some of these sons would end up being part of the Arab nations that we currently have. So it is something to ponder as you look at the Middle East, doing a study of the origins of peoples and their countries, where they came from, who God had promised the land of Israel to. And it's awesome to see that God, the Bible, that history, it's all lining up together right now. I don't want to get too into current events right now because we're studying Genesis chapter 21. But as you look at the Middle East, as you look at what God is doing in the nations of the world, our time is so short. Our time is short. There's truth that needs to get out there. And God wants to equip us. So study the word, study history, study uh, biblical archaeology and, and see how you can show people that what the world we're living in today, it's, it's right here in our word. In verse 22, it says, And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. Now, these two have had previous run-ins. You remember Abimelech and Abraham dealt with each other when Abraham said to his wife, Sarah, look, you're, you're hot, okay? And the guys are going to try to take you. They're going to kill me. So I need you to say that you're my sister. I'm pretty sure those were the words he used. And as they did this, Abimelech, the king, took Sarah into his throne room. And I'm sur sure that there was men who sought her, even maybe Abimelech himself. And God visited Abimelech in a dream and told him, you're a dead man. You need to give Sarah back to her husband, Abraham, or I'm, you're going to be dead. So Abimelech wakes up from his dream, tells all his kingdom people, like, hey, we need to give Sarah back to Abraham, and they do so, and they even give them gifts and send them on their way. And Abimelech was mad with Abraham. He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? And we are reminded of Abraham, this great man of faith, that he had lapses in faith. And because they had these previous run-ins, the king and Abraham, the king went to Abraham knowing that God had his provision, his protection upon Abraham. said, look, Abraham, let's make a covenant that you're going to be at peace with me and my people, and I will be at peace with you. And therefore, there will be no 
uh, division amongst us. We are not going to attack each other because Abimelech knew that God was for Abraham. So God here is actually making peace between Abraham and his potential opponents. It says in verse 25, then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs, which you have set by themselves? And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. So sometime or another, Abimelech's men, they had taken this well from Abraham that he had dug, had built. And Abraham didn't like this, obviously. So he told Abimelech, hey, there's a problem here. Your guys are taking the wells that my guys are digging. And Abimelech claims, he's like, well, I didn't know anything about it. I'm sorry. And they he gives them seven lambs as they make them a new well. They dig it back up. And in this exchange, I'm, I'm realizing that this Eastern culture, they were very hospitable. They had a lot of honor in their value system. And so their word meant a lot when they had this covenant with one another. And I'm sure as they were exchanging these words, there was a very animated uh, dialogue going between Abimelech and Abraham. If you visit the Middle East, you'll see in these Eastern countries, as people trade or barter, there's a very animated uh, characters as they're doing so. And it's quite interesting. It says in verse 31, Therefore he called the place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Now, the very word Beersheba, it means the well of seven or the well of the oath. The word Beer means the well. And then Sheba can mean seven or promise, the oath. So that's what they called it. And in verse 32, it says, Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba, so Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. Now, notice here, Abraham plants this tree and to call on the name of the Lord. This is in worship. When you see L-O-R-D all capitalized, that very word, it's the all-becoming one. Because God is everything that we need him to be already. He's the everlasting God, meaning he has no beginning, no end. The great I am. 
only a God who is eternal can create the world that we live in. He can't be bound by time or space. He can't, cannot be bound by nature itself. Something supernatural had to create nature. And that's exactly what happened. And Abraham worships the everlasting God, even in a land that is not his own. We're going to push just a little bit into chapter 22. We're not going to go very far. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Notice Abraham's, he knows God's voice. So he answers quickly. He's as obedient as he can be. Here I am, God. Then he said, take now your own son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. At this point, Abraham finally got what God had promised him. He finally got the desire of his heart in the land of the living. His son from Sarah was born. And he must have been filled with so much joy, so much faith. He could have conquered the world, perhaps he felt at this point in his life. That he could live peaceably and happily and die a peaceful death, knowing that God had fulfilled this promise of giving him the son. That through his seed, there would be many nations and when Abraham finally has it, when things are finally going the way that he had planned, when everything was good, God is now testing Abraham. He says, okay, Abraham, what do you love more, this life or being obedient to me? He's asking Abraham to give up that one thing which he loved so dearly, loved the most, something that was good, his only son. Now, many of you have heard this story before and you think, how can a loving God ask that of Abraham? That's, that's cruel, that's harsh, that's mean. And yes, the natural mind might think that, but we have to realize that God already knows the end story. He already knows the end game of what Abraham's going to do, what's going to happen to Isaac, how it's all going to turn out. We can't think of God in human terms. We can relate to it in that way, but God is not a man that he makes mistakes. God is all just, he's all loving, he's perfect.
And God, in that same manner, one day, the same way he asked the son of Abraham, would give up his own son so that you and I can have a relationship with him. Also knowing what would come, the victory that would come from God giving Jesus Christ his only begotten son as a sacrifice for the world. God is sovereign. He's the everlasting God. He's eternal. He knows the end of the story and he's won. Because of this, we are more than overcomers. You see, a victor, someone who's won in battle, he's a conqueror because he has won. But as believers, we are more than conquerors. Why? Because God has already won the battle. And because God has already won the battle, we are more than conquerors because we have already won. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We come before you, Lord Jesus. We ask that you would forgive us for our doubts, forgive us for our errors in faith. Strengthen our faith. May your spirit fill our life, Lord. And we not turn to vices, Lord God, but turn to you. I pray for those who are in a season of wilderness, in a season of dryness, Lord God. May your living water, Jesus Christ, meet them, fill them, refresh them. May you go before us this week, Father. And the name of Jesus be on our mind, in our hearts, on our lips. May we share. May we grow. May we worship you forever and ever. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This Sunday we're going to be meeting again in my backyard at 10.30 a.m. So we hope to see you there. Invite a friend. We'll be praying for you. Go ahead and message us prayer, if you want to talk. Jesus loves you guys. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the as we wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord, we will wait upon the Lord, our God, you reign forever, our hope, our strong deliverer, you are the everlasting God, the everlasting God, you do not faint, you won't grow weary, you're the defender of the weak, you 
comfort those in need You lift us up on wings like eagles Be blessed this week We will see you Sunday morning In Jesus' name